Hey, welcome to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction, but more importantly, a podcast about recovery. I'm Casey Scott, and uh, my road to recovery started with Pinnacle Recovery Center. If you know somebody who uh, could use some help, tell them to do what I did and give Pinnacle Recovery a call. Of course, we've got Dr. Matt Woolley here. He's the yin to my raging yang. How are you, buddy? <laughs> I'm good. How are you doing, Casey? Now, normally we do a check-in with Casey, but when you got right. Hollywood A-listers in right? studio, right? you just you, you, you jump past that and you jump right to them. You're like our local A-lister, but when we get the Hollywood A-listers in, that... That bumps me down to Just a C. A, no, B minus. Max. B minus? Yeah. I'll take whatever I can yeah. get. But we got Brandon Novak. How are you, buddy? Uh, you guys are too kind, too gracious, honestly. You set the bar way too high. <laughs> right? Now you expect things out of me. That's not good. That's how we psych so, him out. Uh, Brandon Novak, you might know him from Viva La Bam, uh, the Jackass movies, and... Uh, more importantly, you're going to know him more for his work in recovery. And uh, you're here doing a big event Saturday night at Pierpont Place. And uh, we're going to try to talk with you. I'm going to talk a little bit. And we've got Court McGee. But before we get to that, let's find out kind of your story, if you don't mind. How did it all kind of transpire for you? Yeah, uh, you know, a quick preface before I get into that. I want to say how much I, I, I really love Utah. I, I've been here before many times in my past, but completely loaded, and it was all blur. <laughs> um, but I had came Halloween to speak at a CA meeting, and mm-hmm. they flew me out, and it was a, like a, con, a costume contest, and, and just the vibe of the, the people there and, and these young people in recovery was very appealing to me, and I'm really big on attraction rather than promotion. Right, because I'm an alcoholic, I'm an addict, and all that simply means is I'm defiant by nature. I hate authority, and I will never, ever, ever conform unless it becomes my idea. Therefore, you tell me what I need to do. I tell you I need to f*** off because I possess this job that consists of knowing everything. Right. But if I can wrap this up into a a, a present with a bow that's in a form of attraction rather than promotion, and, and you make it look very sexy, appealing, all of a sudden now I want to do it, and guess what? I excel at a rapid pace. Why? Because it's my idea. So I, I don't know why I went to that whole rabbit hole, but when I was out here for the CA convention, they flew me out to speak, the young people in Utah made recovery look very attractive to me, very appealing. So when Jody asked me if I'd be interested to come out to Utah again, I didn't even hesitate to say absolutely. You're in. Yeah, because I like That's how some you guys good, do that here. That's some good psychology, though. The attraction is much more sustainable than promotion, right? You know what? It was when weird. people are attracted to something positive. Yeah. I, I was listening to him speak, and I, and I say that about my addiction. If if somebody told me I couldn't do something, I was like, watch, I'll show you. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I will drink more than anybody, and, and I would win that. And if somebody says, you know, you can't stay sober, watch, I'll show you I can stay sober, and I'll get it back. But it has to be my idea. It has to be. And I think that's, you know, I, I on this show and this podcast, I always talk about my recovery because it's unique to me. Yeah. And and, and, and this is what I'm doing, and, and it seems to be working for me. So when we get before we get to your recovery, yeah. how did this kind of – how did you go down this dark road? I mean, because a lot of people probably looked at you and said, I mean, this kid's got everything. They're doing TV shows. They're doing movies. He's a talented skater. How did you get bit by this addiction? Yeah, you know um – my opinion, and that's just what it is, my opinion, but I believe I was genetically predisposed, right? My father was an addict. His father was an addict. I'm the only son by my father. My brother and sister are by a different man. My mother, my brother, my sister, they could take or leave a drink. They could care less about it. Uh, I believe I was genetically predisposed. Now, you you pair that with the concept that, um, you know, I was 
very talented at a young age. I, I found a, a, a skill that I, was God-giving to me. That The moment that I got that skateboard at the age of seven, my mother put me to bed that night. She said, Brandon, what do you want me to do with the skateboard? I said, I want it in bed with me. She said, why? I said, because if I die, I want it to come with me. It was like I knew the moment that board touched my hand, uh, I was going to be a professional skateboarder. It was like God had handed me the Holy Grail personally. Um, I ate it. I breathed it. I slept it. I dreamt it. At 15, I became... Uh, a pro f- professional skateboarder. I, I was designing my pro model for Powell Peralta. I was touring the world with Tony Hawk. At the age of 14, I was the first skateboarder ever in the world to be endorsed by Gatorade, and they were flying me to Chicago to the Quake Roads building where they made Gatorade at the time. They they put me on one treadmill, and they put Michael Jordan on a treadmill next to me, and they'd, they'd strap all these wires to our hearts and, and, and put these tubes like down our noses and in our throats to give us each Gatorade to see the effects it has on different sports players. So from that very young age... Um, skateboarding did for me then what drugs and alcohol did for me later, right? Because you give me that skateboard at the age of seven and put me in a room with the prettiest models in the world, I'll not only think that they were waiting for me, I'll think that they are dying to marry me. (laughs) Drugs did that for me later. Um, But I I had goals, I had dreams, I had aspirations, right? A lot of years I would go in and out of treatment centers and I was so worried about saving my face Right, because everything was exterior. I really believe that social acceptability equaled my personal recovery. So as long as the home was big enough, the woman was pretty enough, the car was new enough, the account was high enough, that meant that I had to be doing well. Um, and and I would go into these treatment centers and I would save my face because I didn't want to tell you like the things that I had done for heroin. Because what if you think I'm gay, or, or what if you think I'm a loser or a failure? I would save my face only to literally lose my ass on the corner of Eastern Avenue and Patterson Park for $40 for another bag. So what happened, the only motivating factor that, that dictates any form of change in my life is a result of pain. I don't change when things are unmanageable. I change when things are unbearable. So what happened is that the pain got great enough that I had became willing to follow whatever suggestions that you people gave me, and, and, and then all of a sudden, for the first time in my life, I focused on saving my and when I focus on saving my ass, my ass and my face correlated somewhere along the lines. So, so my story is my story, and I'm glad you asked this because it's not a black and white one size fits all. If that were the case, I would have got it at my first treatment center at the age of 17. I didn't get it to my 13th at 35. So my story is, is I had goals, I had dreams, I had aspirations. I didn't come from a bad home. My mother's a nuclear physicist on the board of Mercy Hospital. My brother's an attorney in the White House who practices pensions and benefits. My father dies a direct result of the disease of addiction. He never held a job a day in his life. He ran with the Hells Angels. He taught me one thing, if and when I go to prison, how to conduct myself. So I actually excelled at everything that I did because I was never going to become my father. I really disliked that man. Um, So it's not like I had, I suffered from these traumatic experiences that once I picked up that first drink, I said, I have arrived. It's not my story. It's not my case. But the reality is, is I can't tell you about the first time I picked up that drink and I said, I found my calling. What I can tell you about is the first time that my drinking and my drugging was threatened. I can tell you about that. And that is almost more important than the first drink because right there, in hindsight, looking back, that defined my future. And what that means is that like I'm an addict and I'm going to do whatever it takes to get the next one. I didn't know that when it took place, but it actually happened through Mike Vallali. Oh, yeah? Yeah. He, he, Professional skateboarder? Yeah. Yep, you right. know, he threatened my drinking career, my drugging career. And Tell then, us about it. So I was on one of my first tours and we were doing a demo. And now this time I had already picked up the drinking and, and partying, but it, it just didn't seem to be an issue. It probably wasn't that uncommon. No, right? you know, I'm a, I'm a 10, 
11, 12-year-old kid touring, uh, doing tours with, with skaters that are 18, 19, 23, 24, 25. And, and just for the listeners, I mean, the skaters that you were skating with were the world-famous rock stars of the sport. Steve Cavallaro, Mike Vallali, Tony Hawk, Mike McGill. Those kind of guys were just, I mean, that must have been unreal for you. Yeah, you know, I, I, I had my dream had became reality and and there was really no accountability right it's not like i had a boss that i checked in with every day who witnessed or monitored my work throughout the day in an office cubicle from 9 to 5 yeah. my accountability my check in was living in baltimore the team manager the team captain if you will lived in santa barbara i'd call him and tell him the new tricks that i learned and Is occasionally that Stacey? no at this time it was todd hastings okay. stacy right. Peralta owned pal todd hastings todd, was the was team, team manager. manager right okay so that was like my babysitter yeah. I, I didn't have a boss that has said, hey, here's my work, and I made it to work by 8 a.m. I didn't have to be in when the street lights were on. Right. You know, I was raised by the dudes that I ran with, and that was a much better reality than the reality that I had home, because my father was a rather unsavory fella. He ran with the Hells Angels, and uh, he was that kind of guy, you know. Probably so, felt more like a family with those guys you were running with. Right? Yeah. My mother was working her butt off to provide for the family, because it was a single mother family. Uh, my brother was busy becoming a lawyer. My sister was like going to college and living down the beach. And my mother would take me with her during the days because no one really trusted what my father would do. And, and anything could was subject to happen. So I was raised in a hospital. I would skate in the parking lot, the parking garages <laughs> all day. I'd just kind of roam around and, and they all looked at You probably knew me. all the security guards. I did. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> they never kicked me out. I was yeah. a sure shop for a skate sesh. So you're saying at 10, you're traveling with these world superstars in the skating world. And when you're out there, you're a superstar. And, yeah. And so you're hanging with guys seven to eight years older than you. Yeah. And, 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 but you're partying with them and totally. hanging with them. Yeah. And, and so, so uh, somewhere along the lines, and I can't recall it because it wasn't like my defining moment as an individual in life, uh, I, I had a, I acquired a, uh, you know, a liking for drugs, right? And I remember we were on that tour, and Mike Vallali found me and caught me with a bunch of drugs. He said, Brandon, get rid of the drugs or get off the tour. So I throw the drugs down the sewer. We finish the demo. I get back to the hotel. I meet a lady at the hotel. She drives me back to the sewer. I fish the drugs out of the sewer. Long story short, I get caught with the drugs. I'm now kicked off. How, how old were you at that time? That was, uh, I'm kicked off the tour. I'm not kicked yeah. off the team yet. That was around 15 going on okay. 16. Valali, he's from Baltimore too, right? No, he's no? from Jersey. Jersey, Neighboring okay. state, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. But okay. same kind of East Coast. But he has that kind of big brother vibe to him, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, um... So now, see, paired with the fact that I possess this job that consists of knowing everything, usually that means I'm the last person to find or realize anything because you can't tell me anything. Um, my delusional alcoholic brain, the very same brain that lies to me in my own voice that makes me believe the unbelievable, tells me the skateboarding world needs me, it cannot go on without me, and I am an asset. Yep. In reality, the skateboarding world does not need me. It goes on quite fine without me, and I'm a liability, but I'm the last person to realize that because I possess that job that consists of knowing everything. Yep. So now, about three weeks into this, I get a phone call from Tony Hawk, my, my higher power at the time, the guy who's given me a reason to live. Mm. He said, Brandon, we have one of two options we could do with you. We can put you into treatment, you can save your life, and you continue to be a pro skater for PAL. Or you can quit the team. Now, from 7 to 15, I ate it, I breathed it, I slept it, I dreamt it. I knew I was going to become it. There was no reason for a school, a plan B, a trait, an option. Like, skateboarding was my calling. And I had arrived. I had achieved my goals. At such a young age. At a young age. That's, yeah, it's I, incredible. I, I mean, that's all I ever wanted. And the first moment that it was threatened by Mr. Hawk, 
I didn't have a breath of fresh air in my lungs when I said I quit. Because what I didn't know then that I understand now is at that point in time and, and, and in the continuing career of my drinking and drugging, I, I, I shied away from conversations that consist of the words honest, reliable, or dependable because they do not help me get one more. And you'll hear in this brief interview of tomorrow at my talk that anything, and I mean anything between me and that next bag, bottle, or pill, must and will go, and it's not personal. It's just business so for you're the telling me, you're telling the, the listeners at 15... Uh-huh. You're a pro skater for Pal Peralta, biggest skateboard companies in the world. You tell Tony Hawk, I quit. Yep. For your drugs. Yeah. But I didn't even I didn't That's even realize man. it. I didn't even realize it. This thing had its grips in me long yeah. before I even realized that I might have a problem. Yeah, I bet and I think that's a, a lot of people who look back on on their uh, addiction and how they use they they lack that self-awareness of what's really going on. I mean, that's a tremendous it, it, amount. I was so internally unique. It could yeah. never happen to me. Yeah. It will never happen to me. This I've happens learned. to other people. This doesn't happen yeah. to me. I'm a 17-year-old superstar. Absolutely. I, I can do what I want. I've been successful to this point. There's a method to my madness. And that was even worse, actually, because people didn't really intervene or interject, if you will, because, hey, I had been successful to this point anyway. He knows so what he's doing. He, exactly. Yeah, he's drinking Gatorade with Michael Jordan. Yeah, so, hanging out <laughs> at his steakhouse. When, when you tell Tony Hawk, I quit, is there any pushback or does he just go, okay. I don't even remember. I don't even recall. I just remember feeling a sigh of relief. Really? Yeah. I thought you would hang up the phone and go, what no. did I just do? No, because already, and you know, I didn't even think about that until this interview. Already at that young age, the abnormal had started to become the normal. Oh. And I don't even know it then. I never even thought about that until just now. I recognize it was very easily recognizable way later down the line. Yeah. Right? When I'm sleeping in abandoned houses, I have a needle hanging out of my arm and I sell my body for a bag of heroin. Then I get the abnormals, the normal. I'm living on the animalistic level. But at that young age, when yeah. I still had everything, I, the abnormal was already becoming the normal because my drinking and drugging was threatened. So at 17, you tell Tony Hawk, I'm out. Yeah. Then where does Brandon go? Well, Ironically enough, I turned down his offer to go to rehab, right? Mm -hmm. So now I'm living with my mother and my girlfriend. Tours are no longer being booked. Flights are no longer being scheduled. Video parts are no longer being produced. Why? Because those uh, consist of me having to uh, have those conversations. They consist of the words honest, reliable, or dependable, right? And I shy from that because that doesn't help me. So, So now I'm doing nothing. And one day my mother and my girl come and they say, we have a great idea. I said, what's that? They said, we want you to go to treatment. Now, I had just politely declined this offer from my <laughs> idol, Mr. Tony Hawk, three months ago. But I look at him, and in all seriousness, I say, that is a phenomenal idea. A, I have the time. B, I'm going to report to said treatment center, and I'll report back to my mother and my girlfriend why I'm not those people, nor will I ever be. So you were going just to prove everybody wrong. Yes, Oba, you know, <laughs> a, a overreaction at best. You simply yeah. caught me at a bad time on a bad way in a bad day. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So I go into that facility with a closed mind and a closed heart, proving a point why I'm not buying what you're selling. I'll never drink your Kool-Aid. And so you're so you're you're kind of going in there and not really paying attention and not you're not there for the, the right reasons. Oh man, you made great, great, great segue into this part right here. I go in there and I'm seventeen years old. They put me in my first facility uh in Baltimore City. It's a, a Wednesday night. I, I'm ill as a research monkey. I'm detoxing off heroin. They put me in this big cafeteria. And in this cafeteria, it's completely empty. There's no one in there. They got these big, like, interrogation-style lights shining down in my face and on me. And, and out of nowhere, this older black gentleman walks up to me. He said, white boy, what are you doing here? 
I said, heroin. He said, how old are you? I said, 17. He said, do yourself a favor and don't turn 18 in a place like this. And as quick as he came, he left. He nor I had no idea the significance of that simple conversation was ever going to have on my life. Going in there for the wrong reasons, focusing on the wrong things, trying to prove a point why I can drink and drug successfully. You know what I could tell you about that gentleman? I could tell you where the four teeth were placed in his mouth because at the time, at the time I had all mine, he's black, I'm white, he's 70 to 75, I'm 17, he's homeless, I live with my mother and my girlfriend, he smokes crack, my delusional alcoholic mind, the one that lies to me, my own voice that makes me believe the unbelievable, tells me I successfully do heroin. <laughs> Thank God that man found the answer for what he's in search of. I'm so grateful that he found it. And right. he was just a resident there? He, yeah, He was yeah, in treatment? Yeah, Now, see, I'm, I'm focusing on why I don't belong there. Yeah. I'm yeah. not looking for the similarities. Yeah. I'm looking for the differences. Was so, that a little bit like looking into the future? No, well, to yeah, me, it was like, at no, the, Not at the not time, at the time, right? It was but like, later. I am in the wrong place. Yeah, I don't belong okay, here. Okay. You know, you're insane. All you people are insane. I'm not that guy. Yeah. I'm a 17-year-old white kid from the suburbs at the time who just got off a tour with Tony Hawk, hanging out with Michael Jordan. <laughs> Yeah. That's what my alcoholic mind tells me. Gotcha. Right? I'm so internally unique. I'm so different that that can never be me. That's crazy because I had a similar experience when I was in my rehab. The second day I was there, I called up my mom and I said, Mom, and people have heard this story, but I want you to hear it. Yeah, I, I yeah, called yeah. my mom and I said, Mom, I'm in the wrong place. <laughs> and she goes, What do you mean? I said, well, There's people in here for meth and, yeah. and, and heroin. I'm here for Bud Light. Yeah. You know? And totally. she goes, What are you talking about? I said, I'm just Bud Light. And she goes, son, you're, you're in the right place. Addiction is addiction. Yeah. But I started, I, I mean, in, in the early infancies of uh, rehab, I wanted to justify that I wasn't bad like everybody else. That I was, I was different. That this is just a mistake. Yeah. I don't belong here. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, and that happens over and over and over. Well, you said 13 times for you. Yeah, well, yeah, but I didn't have those experiences where I felt different at all 13 times. Right, because throughout time, my disease progressed, things got much worse, right? And uh, I had ran out of options, options, and resources, right? No one was, like, really running to help me. Like you said, eventually the pain got high enough that you started to make some I changes. I became willing to do what? But how long did that first treatment experience last? Like, that gentleman kind of came and thought he was helping, but you, you saw the opposite. You saw proof that you shouldn't be there. How long were you in that treatment center? Well, I stayed in that facility for 30 days, but what that man did is he planted the seed. Yeah. He planted the seed, and here's how that story plays out real quick, if you will. Um, what I, so I could tell you all those things about that man. Mm -hmm. What I could not tell you is my therapist's name, my relapse prevention packet they're shoving down my throat, or the healthier, unhealthy boundaries you're trying to instill in me. Because if I could tell you those things, that means I can relate to being one of you people, and I want no part. So you just shut that I, out. Yeah, so I leave that treatment center, disease untreated. No defense against me or that first drink or drug. He was right. I did not turn 18 in a place like that. But I turned 19, 20, 22, 23, 24, 26, 27, 29, 30, 32, 33, 34, 35 in a jail or a treatment center. And wow. every year, I'd sit on whatever bunk of whatever cell of whatever jail I happen to be in or whatever bed of whatever treatment center I happen to be in and think back to myself and say, maybe if me, myself, Brandon Novak, would have listened to that man with an open mind and an open heart, I would not continuously find myself in this situation year after year after year. He had did su That was such a profound thing that he did, and at the time, I, I laughed it off. Yeah, that's powerful. And, I, and there's other parts of my story that, doesn't make sense for me to tell it here where that guy is all I think about. Yeah. You're listening to the honest, real, 
Truth of Brandon Novak. And you're listening to Project Recovery. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Project Recovery. Brandon Novak talked about his first experience in rehab. And uh, when did you get involved with the Jackass and the uh, Viva La Bam uh, whole ordeal? So I, you know, I, I go from being that pro skater to then like deciding that it makes more sense to shoot heroin than pursue my dreams of skateboarding. So I give that away, and uh, I become a full blown heroin addict running the streets of Baltimore, homeless, you know, you name it, everything with the word less on it. I had became at that point, and one day I, I go into a local skate shop that I would occasionally go into and hit them up for cash. And I go in this day and I said, hey, I'm trying to get some money, my normal routine. They said, we're not going to give you any money today. But Bam Margera was here with the Toy Machine team at the time, is who he rode for, doing a demo yesterday. And he asked about you and he said, he left his number and he said, if you ever want help, to call him. Now see, Bam and I were were best of friends yet arch enemies when it came to this specific contest every year meaning he would win or i would win we were both very good contest skaters very consistent tricks outside the box um and we'd practice to to beat each other every year and this year he goes to the contest and i don't show up and my my mentor bucky lasik who's from baltimore as well who got me sponsored by pal was there and bam went to bucky he said where's novak and bucky said he's on heroin and bam was like what's that such a young age has no idea what that is Fast forward to Bam excelling. Bam now makes creates the CKY videos, which he makes his first millions off of. Then that segues into the Viva La Bam, uh, the Viva La Bams, then the Jackass. Finally, I go into the skate shop to try to get some money. They say no money. Here's Bam's number. Call him if you want help. Cut to a few days later, I'm calling him. That's my integration or merge into Pennsylvania to attempt to get clean. When I get there, he says, look, you know, your only job is to stay clean. If you could stay clean, um, meaning to him, because they couldn't grasp the concept of addiction. They have no idea. He was just trying to help his best friend out. And what clean to him was, was no heroin, no pills, nothing that would make me steal or fall asleep in the middle of a conversation. But drinking was totally fine and cocaine was fine because it was socially acceptable. Um, So as long as I stayed away from the downers, which would make me steal, do all that stuff, uh, I could be on the TV show, I could have a car, I could use a credit card, and I could actually get paid from the show that I was on. So that was my... And how long did you do that for? Um, I'd say the TV, uh, probably about four years, four years, and, and in that time living there, so we would be filming all the Viva La Bam episodes, and then we would go out uh, after we were done, after we wrapped for the day, and we'd go to a restaurant bar, and there'd be a table of cast and crew of like 40 or 50 people, one big table, and Bam was always very intrigued and interested in my stories that involved heroin, and the positions and places they put me in and the people that it involved. So he would always have me recite these stories. Um, and, and when I would be telling these stories in these bars with like 40, 50 people, you could hear a pin drop. And Bam said, up, oh, the rules have changed. I said, what do you mean the rules have changed? He said, what you're going to do is you're going to write a book. Now, I had not graduated high school, was not kindly asked to leave the 10th grade for drugs and alcohol, go figure. <laughs> I have no GED. I get my GED in prison after my first book is published, but that doesn't contain to this story. Um, but I don't know how to write a book. He said, no, you're going to write a book. Uh, I am to see you with 
a pen and paper in your hand 24-7. That's your new job. Yeah. I don't care if you're writing or not. You have to have a pen and paper in your hand. The only time you don't have to have in your hand is when you're sleeping. The moment that I don't see you with that pen and paper in hand, you're going back to Baltimore. That's it. Right. And 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 I said, well, how do you write a book? So I go to my co-author, which is a gentleman by the name of Joe Franz. I said, how do you write a book? He's a real smart guy. Letters in front and behind his name. Mm-hmm. He said, a, a book's generally written in 12 chapters. Mm-hmm. So I said, OK. So I, 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 I pen and paper wrote my whole first book and, and I started my book out. I, I like books. I'm a big reader and it has to come out with a bang. It has to start having grabbed my attention. I was on board. Um, so I started my book. The very first chapter was my last day using doing something I swore that I would never do to obtain money to get drugs. Um, and then. It starts there, then I get into rehab, I meet my therapist, my therapist takes me from 16 years old through conversations to the day that I walk out of treatment. Um, and, and, and one day I go to him and I said, I think I'm finished. And, and he gives it, I give it to my co-author, he's like, wow, you actually did it. Bam gets me a literary agent through his publicist. They get a literary agent, they shop it around, the book gets sold, I become a published author. Uh, who then becomes a New York Times selling author who had written a book on addiction. But what wow. I forget to mention is that I wrote that book while on a large amount of cocaine and wine. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, so you think I wasn't humble enough before to come into a treatment center and say, okay, maybe I don't know what I'm talking, maybe I don't know what I'm doing, but you seem to, so can you help me? Pair that with professional skateboarder at the age of 16, touring the world with Tony Hawk, hanging out with Michael Jordan, have now been in movies that break box office records several times over, paired with the fact that I'm a New York Times selling author who's written a book on addiction. My delusional alcoholic mindset, I just wrote the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> Meanwhile, I wrote that on high on cocaine and wine. Do you really think I'm going to come into your facility and listen to you tell me I need to work those 12 steps? You've lost your mind. Because you've got the Midas touch. I'm saving people's lives. I'm literally receiving hundreds of thousands of pieces of mail from all over the world in different languages. No, like, no exaggeration. And, and they're saying, Novak, I read your book. I didn't want my story to get as bad as yours. I have 30 days. Novak, I read your book. I understand my daughter picks the bottle over coming to have dinner with me on the weekends. It's not that I'm a bad mom. It says she suffers with a disease of addiction. I believe I've just solved the world's addiction problem. <laughs> paired with the fact that I possess that job that consisted of knowing everything, paired with the fact that I hate authority, I will never conform unless it becomes my idea, good in, luck. In some ways, maybe all that success was uh, not a good thing for, for you? Or, well, it or wasn't was. at that point yeah. in time, but if you want to cut to the present day, right? Um, and that's not to say that, that there's real... I mean, that was evidence that what you were doing was helping people. Like, it sounds to me like you probably had, I could tell by the look on your face change when you're talking about that. There's some satisfaction there. There's some, I, I don't know, pride in that you were helping people. But there's that dichotomy of I'm helping people. People are giving me positive feedback. I've done something really good. But then I could tell that you're also thinking, I'm better than everybody. I know more than everybody. Yeah, my right? disease told me. Yeah, that. I, I'm not like you guys. This is the final confirmation that I'm not like you guys. Yeah, like you addicts. Did yeah. you feel like a false prophet? I guess big time. It, you know, you'll see if you see the uh, tomorrow at my talk. I play this six minute video before I come out, and 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 part of it is is me on a tour bus crying uncontrollably as Bam's holding me, and 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 the reason that took place is because I would get off this tour bus and and people will be handing me books of copies of dream seller to sign in in different countries and 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 i don't understand 
why people would put me there when really, if you really knew me, when times get tough, I revert to standing on Eastern Avenue in Patterson Park letting anybody buy me for money. To wow. Get. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I'm that guy. Like, uh, so it's and like, that was all unresolved. I mean, you were living a double life. Yeah, it, it was the way. And the saddest thing was is, is I didn't want to use. I didn't. Most of the time, I really didn't. But I just, I couldn't not use. Because my disease, I don't know the disease from which most people possess, but the disease from which I possess, when that thing jumps, I say, yes, sir, how high? Mm-hmm. I don't have the privilege to say, you know what, I'm going to sit this out because it does not seem like a good career choice for me. That's not the disease. And I keep my story very upfront, very graphic, and very descriptive because the moment that I forget where I come from, I will return. Mm. That serves as a real grounding issue for you to be able to be that graphic. I keep my past married to my present because the moment that I forget that. You don't want to forget that. Yeah, yeah, then, then all of a sudden I take credit for these things, right? And now there is no higher power in my life. And ultimately what happens is Brandon becomes Brandon's God. Brandon only sponsors Brandon, and Brandon only attends Brandon's Anonymous. And then for the life of me, like uh, I'm, I'm getting buried in that plot that my mother had bought me eight years ago. You know what I find interesting about this is that you say you wrote this book and you changed lives. And I used to say when I was in my addiction that uh, I could give great advice. Oh, yeah. I couldn't take it, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but yeah. I could give great advice because I knew what was right. I think when you wrote those words and you did change people's lives, you knew what was wrong and you were taking that from some of what was your past experiences. You just weren't buying your own advice because I, I, I imagine the stuff you were telling people to do is good, solid advice, but you just weren't taking it yourself. Do you think that's kind of true? Well, the book, there is no real advice given. It's simply just my life. And it's, it talks of my life. And I think really thinking about it now, uh, uh, processing this and having this conversation with you, it's, it's, the book really serves as just a cautionary tale. So I think the reason why people's lives may have been saved after the reading of my book is because like, <laughs> we do not want to become that. Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah, I don't yeah. want to hit Brandon Novak rock bottom. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> you know so, I mean? Like you're the Bud Light story. Yeah, I'm not yeah. these guys, mom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not Brandon Novak. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, the, hey, my life got bad, but it didn't get Brandon yeah. Novak bad. Yeah. Let's see. And then that'll happen. I'll go to treatment centers i'll go to these events that i throw and i'll tell my story and people will put their hands up and they'll say my story wasn't as bad as yours and they'll use that as a justification as why like maybe they don't belong and i always say i counter that with my story was not as bad as my story either in the beginning <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right 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 in the beginning it was not as bad as it had turned out to be yeah. so it we've talked about some of your highest highs you know uh, running next to michael jordan breaking box offered box office records uh, we've also talked to some of your lowest points when did you go to the 13th rehab and what made you decide to do that? May 25th, 2015. Um, so almost like two and a half weeks ago to today. To date, uh, I walked into my 13th facility. My worldly possessions, everything I owned consisted of the world, the clothes on my back. I, I had a bag that, 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 that held eight scarves, two jackets, three socks, one stick of deodorant. That bag doubled as my pillow. I had a needle. I had a spoon, a restraining order that my mother had just served me, and four cigarette butts that I just picked up off the ground. Uh, and, and what led me to walking into that facility is that the drugs literally stopped working. Every morning at that point in time, I was waking up and I was buying $180 worth of heroin and cocaine. And, 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 it, and it was fine up to them because what would happen without fail 
never failed me. Every time I injected a bag of heroin or cocaine, a delusional effect was immediately produced, which would allow myself, Brandon Novak, to escape the reality that I had created for myself. Therefore, A, ignorance was bliss, and B, not only was it tolerable, it was almost desirable. It was almost welcomed, right? Because I'm living in this false reality that I have created, that heroin and cocaine have created for me upon that injection. But what do I do when I'm a 35-year-old homeless heroin addict? I just told you everything I owned. Just woke up from being on life support for seven days, and I'm putting, I I literally can't put another drop of water in the the rig because the plunger will pop out. That's how much it's loaded. And, And that delusional effect is no longer produced, meaning I can no longer escape the reality that I have created for myself. That moment of clarity takes place when I'm high and when I'm sober. What do you do? What do I do? I've came too far to turn back now. I want to kill myself, but I don't want to hurt myself in the process. I'm horrible at suicide because I keep waking up. I'm in a position in life where I'm so low the curb looks like a skyscraper, but yet I remember that like you people stay sober because every time I go back to treatment, you're there. Yeah. So all of a sudden, like, maybe I don't know what's going on. And I came to the realization walking to that 13th facility that, you know what I do know? Is that I don't know. I say that often. At 45, I thought I'd have the world's answers. Ah. And I realized at 45, I don't have any. The longer I stay sober, the less I know. Right? Really. One thing, but- I, one thing I want to clarify. Did you go into that 13th facility of your own accord, or did somebody Begging and pleading. So that's... Big. How different is Gift that than of all the other? Yeah, I had became willing, became my idea. Right. I had met the God of my understanding as a direct result of that gift of desperation. If you would have told, you would have told me to do. This is that you know I have to be like family oriented on this show. But if you would have told me to do anything, I would have been more than happy and willing to do it. Why? Because like it would promise me a couple more hours of sobriety. I was willing to, and it was my idea. And guess what? I've excelled at a rapid pace. God willing, in a few weeks, I'll have four years sober. I have not had the desire to pick up a drink or drug one time in my sobriety. That's not amazing. once. I've been an IV heroin and cocaine user for 20 years straight. One year of incarceration was I free from addiction. So that was by force, not by choice. Right. 24 years, smoked, sniffed, drank, and ate. You name it, I did it to try to lift myself of the, obs- the desire, rid me of the obsession to use. I'd moved to Amsterdam, I'd moved to Finland, I'd moved to Paris. Uh, I changed women, homes, careers all over the United States until I had that spiritual experience from me that came through the 12 steps. Uh, that was the only thing that had ever, 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 ever worked for me. And, and I continued, they told me in the beginning, they said, kids, stick to the basics, so God willing, you don't have to go back to the basics. So I don't get lost in the accessories of shit, man. I keep it real simple. Yeah. I get up in the morning, I ask God, uh, I thank him, I, I, I experience the steps, I have a sponsor, I have sponsees, uh, you know. Just... Well, that's, that's amazing. I find a lot of times with people, the, the word we use in psychology is oppositional. Both of you guys are describing being oppositional, which is when somebody tells you to do something, you push back. But what I've also found is that when a person can flip that a 180, and when they, like you said, make it their own idea, or when they're dedicated to a cause, then they become some of the most determined, mm-hmm. hardworking people that, that create some amazing things in their lives. And it sounds to me like it wasn't until you had done that flip in your mind, that 180 in your mind, that now you were on the other side. You were begging to get into there, begging, begging to get the, the treatment, that, and now you've excelled at that. Yeah, 
it, all of a sudden it became very attractive, very appealing. And I've said that forever about people who skateboard. You watch these kids skateboard, and they'll do a trick a thousand times. I've watched my some of my, my kids in the driveway do a trick a thousand times until they get it. Yeah. And that's impressive. That's that determination. Yeah. And when you can focus that on something that changes your life in a positive, healthy way, it's the same principle as skating. It's the same principle as uh, making uh, a movie, doing a shot over and over and over again until you get it right. But now you had it focused on yourself. Yeah, and so now what my lo- what my life looks like today, right? And all all from me just getting out of my own way, right? I take no credit for anything. But but now like I, I just quit smoking October fourth, right? So I'm smoke free. I don't even smoke cigarettes. That's I, great. I just ran a five k. I'm in the gym five days a week. I work out with a trainer two of those days. Uh, I've just purchased my first home. Um, I just learned how to write checks two years ago. I'm a productive member of society. I'm a productive tax-paying member of society. So you're you're with the 80-year-old still writing checks? Is that what you're telling yeah, me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you have a coin purse? Slow down, killer. I just learned this, for Christ's sake. You, you, you got a coin purse? <laughs> hey, you're listening to Brandon Novak as he tells his story on his road to recovery. Uh, coming up in episode two, we're going to find out what he's doing next and how he's helping out people along the way. You're listening to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. That's John Smith. Project Recovery is a KSL podcast. Welcome to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction, and more importantly, a podcast about recovery. I'm Casey Scott. This is Dr. Matt Woolley. And for the second episode, we've got Brandon Novak in studio, and we've been kind of going through his story. And what I've what I've taken away from this so far is that I think I'm a lot like you in this sense that it's all or nothing. If I'm going to do drugs, if I'm going to do alcohol, I'm going to do it all the way. If I'm going to do sobriety, I'm going to do it all the way. Do you, do, you, do you think that's accurate? Absolutely. You know, like I was talking to you before we ended the last clip about like I go to the gym five days a week. I had to get a trainer and like I'm just full on into this thing. Like I can't just go today and maybe go next week. Because if you don't go, it's kind of like your addiction. You, there's something that feels wrong in the body. And they told me I'm very routine-oriented. So I do the same things that I did in treatment today. I wake up. The first thing I do is I make my bed, followed directly behind me getting on my knees. Do you know why they tell you to make your bed? Because if that's all you do, you at least did one thing right that day. I, I, that makes complete sense That's to what me. they told me in rehab. They said, make your bed every day because if you don't do anything else, at least you did one thing well, it's right. It's also it's like, it's, it's, it's a simple thing, but it's not. Because it's discipline, and that's one of the main things that is required to make huge changes in life is can a person be consistent in their discipline? And so if you're, if every morning, Brandon, you're getting up making your bed and, and praying, I mean, that you're starting your day off with consistency and discipline, and, that, and that's going to carry through the day. I've did it since day one, and uh, now I'm a big believer of, like, why well, fix it if it's not broke? I used to fix a lot of things that were not broke. <laughs> um, <laughs> And, and now I can tell you, if you came into my house three or four days in a row and the bed consistently was not made three or four days in a row, problems are, are coming. Mm. They are. Okay. It's something very simple, yet so profound. Uh, I like and I don't want to know what it is. I don't want to figure out what it is. But it's, it, it is. It mm-hmm. is. It's an indicator. Yes. A sign. It's a sign. Hey, so in the first episode, we talked about you going to your 13th rehab, mm-hmm. uh, begging and pleading yeah. for them to accept you. Yeah. Uh, so tell me a little bit about that experience. So I had been to this, as my disease progressed, so did my treatment center stays, right? Like in the beginning, my disease was a blast and I mm-hmm. loved it. And I had a lot, I had a lot of great times getting loaded. I just <laughs> did. Um, and at the end, there wasn't great times anymore and the fun had, had long stopped. 
but my treatment center stays in the beginning it was like the aromatherapy classes the acupuncture the art therapy the the music you know and at the end it was a a, a public ran facility a state funded facility that cost me two dollars to get into oh um wow. I, and i had nothing i had no insurance i had nothing um and, and in that facility, I had been to that facility my four previous attempts out of my 13 overall. And, and, and I would sit in the same chair with the same intake coordinator. And she'd say, okay, Mr. Novak, your insurance covers 90 days. And I'd say, in theory, 90 days sounds great. But in reality, I'm more of like a 45-day kind of fella. This woman to do <laughs> this job to fulfill this state to go to. And she would gently laugh at me each and every time and say, sweetheart, you have no idea. Anything and everything that you put in front of your recovery does not or will not matter because you will lose it. And I would say, I guess you didn't get the email of my resume. And, I, yeah. and she would laugh. I wrote a book. Yeah. <laughs> of one of the many things that I had done. Yeah. Right? And, 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 and now something drastically different had taken place. It drastically changed. I'm sitting in the same chair with the same intake coordinator. And finally, for the first time in my life, I had been demoralized in just such a fashion from drugs and alcohol. I've been beaten in that state of reasonableness that I'm sitting in this chair and she comes to me with the same offer she had given me four previous times. And when she gives me that same offer, I cannot even come back with a counter offer because if I say no, it entails an explanation. All I can simply do is nod my head yes for the first time and thank God for this. I was beaten speechless by my disease of addiction. I, I couldn't even talk. And thank God for that. And she said, sweetheart, you're in no condition to do your intake. Get up to detox. I'll see you in four days. And I get up to detox, and there's this 19-year-old, very happy-go-lucky tech worker. And he said, Mr. Novak, you're back. And I said, aren't you a genius? <laughs> <laughs> you don't miss a beat, do you, boy? <laughs> and he said, I didn't get into the story. It's not really uh, appropriate for this avenue but 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 i had got robbed before going into that facility and when i got robbed they literally ripped my clothes off and i didn't have underwear on at the time so i was completely exposed and my clothes were tied on by a shoestring and i get in there and this 19 year old tech mr novak you're back and i see he said he said i'm sorry to inform you but your clothes are not rehab oriented you need some underwear you need mm -hmm. some sweatpants you need some slides and now i told you all i own is eight scarves two jackets three socks and one stick of deodorant a needle, a spoon, and a restraining order, and four cigarette butts. And, uh, and I also remember you guys telling me a grateful addict will never use again, a grateful alcoholic will never drink again. And I was never too grateful because the pain had never became great enough. Now, go figure, the pain has finally done its job. Uh, I'm begging for that one more chance. And, and I tell him, I said, I, I don't have those clothes, right? My disease does not allow me the ability to own those underwear or... Or, uh, that my life is consumed by the getting and using and finding ways and means to get more. I don't wash underwear and shower. Are you kidding me? The, the abnormal has become the norm. I'm living on an animalistic level. He said, come downstairs to the basement. We're going to go to the donations room. We're going to see if we can find you some used underwear. All right, so let me give you a snapshot of my life. My mother's a nuclear physicist. My brother's an attorney in the White House. My father dies a direct result of why I hate addiction. First skateboarder endorsed by Gatorade, hanging out with Michael Jordan, touring the world with Tony Hawk, designing my pro model. I have a private tutor that flies with. In these movies that break box office records, New York Times selling author who has written a book on addiction. On the flip side of that coin, I've, uh, I've, I've now just walked into my 13th inpatient facility. Uh, I've lost count of outpatients and detoxes. I've been medevaced to four different hospitals in four different states from four different overdoses. My mother now has simply went to God and said, God, please cure him, please kill him, or please kill me. I can't take it anymore. She has sold three homes to financially pay for me to go to two different treatment centers. Uh, 
And I stand in the basement of a Catholic Charities Rehab, a 35-year-old homeless heroin addict, as this 19-year-old tech thumbs through these boxes looking for a pair of second, third, fifth, tenth hand used underwear, and I'm praying to God that he finds them. Mm-hmm. How did I get there? Mm-hmm. I had goals. I had dreams. I had aspirations. I was not going to become this. No way in hell was that my, my, no, no, no. I couldn't, I still can't wrap my head around it. And, uh, and two very imperative things happened in the basement. As he's looking for a pair of used underwear, and I'm praying to God that he finds them. He, he doesn't find the used underwear, but what he finds is a pair of size 40 women's sweatpants with no drawstring, a woman's tank top, and a pair of size 13 Jesus sandal. I'm not a woman, and I don't wear a size 13. Two very imperative things happened in the basement of that church. I came to the realization that what I do know is that I don't know. And my very best thinking leads me to this place time after time. Right? So there goes that job of knowing everything, which was a big crux for me. And the second thing, right? I tried everything to remove the obsession, lift me of the desire of, of drinking or drugging. Didn't want to do it most of the times, but had no, uh, no, no say-so. And if I did or didn't, it calls I answer. The pain had become great enough. I had met the God of my understanding in the basement as he thumbed through those boxes, a direct reform of that gift of desperation. And all of a sudden, like I had that spiritual experience, my first of many. And they had already started happening way before I walked into treatment, but I didn't see them then. I recognize them now. Um, and, and, and then I take the women's clothing and he gets me I go upstairs and I get a shower I get that Baltimore City smell off me and I had never been so excited to put women's clothing on in my life <laughs> um, and I successfully completed that 90 day treatment center stay so you stayed for 90 days 90 days they couldn't even keep me another day literally 90 days to the day in that 90 day treatment center stay go figure the only thing I had never tried with those steps that was the only thing I never tried and I, had, I can't even think of something now to myself, coming up on four years sober with some knowledge in my head, to say, how could I have a glass of wine and it turn out different? I'm telling you, I had tried everything. And I'm a pretty intelligent individual. Um, that was the only thing I hadn't tried. The willingness had appeared. The pain had become great enough. I get a sponsor. By the time I left on literally 90 days, they didn't cut me at 87. They cut me at 90 days. At the dinner time on my 90th day, they could not have kept me another day. Um, I had got a sponsor, and I had experienced eight steps. I was on my eighth step. I was making my list. And, and what I learned in that treatment center is that uh, a lot of things, but the things that I always keep near and dear to my heart is that, that my mentality creates the reality for which I live in. Right. And if I change my perception, I can change my world. And that my defects, the biggest defects in my life, have now become my biggest assets with that shift of perception, attraction rather than promotion. Because right right now, we're, we're not in an epidemic, we're in a pandemic of the opioid uh, addiction. addiction. 192 people, I believe, today in the nation will die solely as a direct result of an opioid overdose. We're not even talking about just addiction as a whole. Uh, it's worse than the Vietnam War, it's worse than the peak of the AIDS outbreak. But now what happens is people are, are hearing my stories through avenues of these podcasts, reading my books, you know, seeing the talks, and they're saying, if that guy, if that guy can do it, then maybe I can do it. Can you help me? So here, you know? here's what I'm listening to, because in the earlier podcast, we talked about my rock bottom wasn't as bad as Brandon Novak's rock bottom. I didn't get as bad as Brandon Novak. But on the other side of that coin, and this is where perception comes in, hey, if I wasn't as bad as him, 
and he's gotten all this back and success and doing all this you stuff. Can Why can't I do it? Totally. You know, you know what I mean? Absolutely. Because, I mean, the, the stories you're telling. But the way the disease works, and it's so powerful, it could go that route, or it could say, I still have some time to run. Yeah. I can mess my life up even more, and then I can possibly get it back just like he did. But see, that's. So you could, depending on where Justification. Yeah, yes. justification. But that's why I, and, I, and I've said this before and yeah. to Dr. Matt, perception is everything. Yes. It, 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 I have it, a disease centered in perception. Yeah. yeah. You know, and so I. I and people go because some people have said, "Hey, Casey seems to be doing this pretty easily." I and, get that a lot. People, and, and, people are like, "Casey seems like he's not—it's not that hard." But the reality is, my perception is, is that I want my life back more than I want to drink, yeah. and that's where I focus on I, drinking. And like, I, I, I. I've got 260 days. It's amazing. I, That's and, a miracle. Congratulations. And, and, I, and, and I love it. And, and and I don't. I haven't had a craving. I haven't want. I mean, you know, I, I've thought in my head, but I, I've never been even tempted to reach for a beer yeah. or a shot or anything like that. It's because I want my life back more than I want that. And it took a horrific accident for me to realize that. That's it. Those are the lost dreams become awoken. Yeah. We're returned back to the person we were designed to be. So when you walk out on your 90th day, you've got a sponsor. You're on step eight. Mm-hmm. Where does Brandon go from there? Because you've been to the top of the mountain. Yeah. You know where I go from there? It's rather ironic now that you've phrased it in that way. Uh, I went from there directly to a sober living house where I was paying 165 a week, 660 a month with bunk beds in each room. <laughs> I got a job. I didn't get a job because my pride would not allow me to get a job. But my manager and my assistant, they had secured me a job before I left. Because I would always say I would do lip service. Yeah, I'll get the job. And I just don't get the job. Mm. My pattern had dictated that's my MO. So what they did was they got me a job. At a, at, and I, I credit this to being the foundation of my sobriety. A lot of things, but this was very imperative. Um, at a, at a breakfast, lunch, diner, very similar to the one we ate at today called Mary Ann's in Levittown, Pennsylvania. Levittown's a very blue-collar town. There's not much going on there except, like, recovery. And uh, and I'm washing dishes for $6 an hour next to a 14-year-old kid at 35 years old. Wow. That's where Brandon went from there. <laughs> Instead of looking over and seeing Michael Jordan, it's a 14-year-old kid, and you're making 6 bucks an hour. Yeah. How did you? Table. How did you under the table? Of course, you don't want to pay taxes on that, man. <laughs> <I'd be broke. laughs> uh, I can make a living, but tell me, tell me, how did that? How did that make you feel? Like you said, your pride stopped you from getting a job before. And we've talked to other people who you know have been up at the top of the mountain, and then their first job in out of recovery is pretty, pretty low compared to where they'd been. How did how did you overcome that pride and, and go there and wash those dishes? I just stopped thinking I, because, again, I knew that I don't know, uh, and I can't say that for stuck certain. with you. Yeah, yeah, big time. Because I think for a lot of people, they have that realization for a little bit. They start to feel better, and then they're, they're like, "Oh no, no, I do know everything." Hence, me keeping my past married to my present. Right. The moment I forget where I come from, I will return. Yeah. Right. Because I have a brain that allows me to have selective memory when it plays in favor of my alcoholism. Oh yeah. Oh, I, yeah. I can Same tell one. you about six years back when I had two glasses of wine in Ram's Head Pub. In Westchester, Pennsylvania, on Halloween night, first snowfall of the year. I could tell you about it just like I touched this cup of tea. Why? Because it was the first time out of maybe four times in my 24-year of drinking.
smoking period where I successfully had two glasses of wine and I was in home in bed by 9 p.m. with my fiance, like I promised, which means that I can control my drinking. And you, you know? told that story for the next 10 years. Yeah. Well, what do you mean? But look at that. What about that time I had to? I, I can yeah. do it. Yeah. And you told it to yourself. Yeah. And you told it to your Abs- family. And you I told it to your it. friends. Yes. I, I would pass a polygraph. I mean, I hear it from people all the time. They go, <laughs> Straight I, up. Uh, they go I, I, I quit drinking for a month. And I go, why? And they go, just so I, I prove I don't have a problem. Yeah. And, and, and they remember that month. And I go, how long ago was that? Well, that was nine, <laughs> ten years ago. Yeah, because my problem was never stopping. Stopping was rather simple. It's staying stopped that's the problem. Yeah. Um, and so, but then my brain will, uh, oddly enough, allow me to block out being medevaced to four different hospitals in four different states from four different overdoses. My mother buying me a plot on Mother's Day. Ruining family yeah. so parties. So that's real. You, you said eight, oh, your true, mom yeah. actually bought you a plot yeah. on Mother's Day. Yeah. Incredible. Um, so my brain doesn't allow me to recall that because that does not tell me that I'm a successful drinker, right? And my right. disease wants no part of that, right? Because I have a disease that lies to me. And check this out. If, if you're diagnosed as an addict or an alcoholic, there's no need to debate this. Don't even try. If you're diagnosed as an addict or an alcoholic, what that means is, 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 is your disease left untreated equals death. It's a fatal disease yeah. left untreated. Not up for debate. Factual yeah. evidence, look it up in any book. As far as I'm aware of, it's the only fatal disease from which I possess that tells me I don't have a disease on a daily basis. Lies to me in my own voice and it makes me believe I'm believable. Follow me. Diagnose me with HIV, I'm rushing to the hospital to get medication. I don't want to die, fatal disease. Diagnose me with cancer, I'm rushing to the hospital to get chemo. I don't want to die, fatal disease. Diagnose me as an addict or an alcoholic, I need a glass of wine or a bag of heroin to figure out what the hell's wrong with you for diagnose me with said <laughs> disease. Yeah. Just as fatal as the first two diseases. It's delusional. Yeah. For my own brain, because that's wow. the problem. Yep. The drink's the solution. The problem is between my two ears. Right. Well, that goes back to what you're saying about perception determines reality, right? Yep. And we say that all the time in cognitive psychology. We kind of follow this pattern of thoughts lead to feelings, lead to behaviors. How you think about things influences your emotions, and your emotions influence what you actually end up doing. Uh-huh. And if, they, if you start that off with a delusional thought or a lie, then you can see where that leads to feelings that don't support reality and behaviors that are unproductive. And justifications all along the way. All along the way. <laughs> and it becomes a cycle. It becomes yeah. a circular cycle. But if you can break that and you change that perception, that thought becomes accurate. I don't know anything. I don't know enough. Only way I was able to break that was through my spiritual experience. Now, it's not a black and white, one size fits all, you know, yeah. different people, different things. That was what worked for me. Hey, you keep saying spiritual. Tell, tell, I mean, can you be brief, but tell us what do you mean by that? Like, was it just that insight? Like, we were talking earlier, you had mentioned kind of a yeah, this feeling that there is a higher power yeah. guiding you. Tell us a little bit about that. It's just uh, uh, no words would ever suffice what I'm trying to yeah. explain or, or, or make you kind of grasp what right. I feel. Because it's so personal. It, it's, it's, not even so, it's so personal, yet it's so powerful. It's so big. It's so, it's so, so insanely big that like, I, I believe that words do no justification but for But you're an it. author. Yeah, I know. I know. You got words. You got <laughs> words, baby. You got 12 chapters of words. <laughs> yeah. But this, I'm telling you, man, it's just, it, it's something that I tapped into yeah. that, that does for me what nothing or no one else could have ever done. You're listening to Brandon Novak here on Project Recovery, and uh, we're listening to him about his life as a pro skater and his life in recovery. Coming up, we're going to find out about him standing on the stage with Jack Osborne and what his life's up to now. You're listening to Project Recovery, a KSL podcast. Thank you. 
Back here on Project Recovery, got Brandon Novak, professional skater. And uh, I looked at your Instagram, uh, and uh, you said it's kind of a surreal moment because we've listened to your story and just little bits and pieces of it, but you just recently found yourself standing on stage where they give Oscars, and you're with Jack Osborne and was it Dr. Oz? Dr. Drew. Dr. Drew. Yeah. Tell us about that. Well, it's just ironic how the world that I live in and the power of the universe can ultimately you know, come full circle. And, and I'm going to give you another instance before I get into that. Drugs and alcohol were my answer to everything forever. Then they became my problem to everything forever. And now, ironically enough, my answer, which became my problem, is now my answer to everything again. And I don't even partake in it. Right, like I write books that are surrounded around it. I work in the field that's created around addiction. Uh, I, I speak all over the nation and the world, um, all about drug addiction and alcoholism. My defect has become my asset so much so that, like, I work in the field and and check this for size. I had given everything to my addiction, and for the first time, drugs and alcohol have actually bought me a home. <laughs> How about that? Yeah. For that size? is crazy. It it provides a living for me now. And you had um, mentioned earlier that that's part of that spirituality. That yeah. You, that you for me, embrace. how I how I how I came across my spiritual experience, and it worked for me. As uh, is, is I always say, that the God of my understanding, and the word God can be very discouraging and very overwhelming. So I just know it's a pat. I don't know if it's a man in a robe. I don't know if it's a, if it's a, the the forest, the the moon, something just bigger than me. But the my higher power brought me to AA and AA via the 12 steps has brought me back to my higher power. That's where my spiritual experience happened um, that I just could not put into uh, words. It's a beautiful irony that it takes you all the way back. It, it full circle again. becomes a strength. Yeah, the defects become the assets with that shift of perception. Yes. So much so that, like, I'm uh, contacted by... The DEA, for Christ's sakes. <laughs> Not like... Uh, so when the caller ID comes and it says DEA... <laughs> literally, I'm getting emails from the government DEA. Uh, I was talking to a woman, and I'm getting a bit off track, uh, who her co-worker was there and said... She walked away, and, and, and he said to me, she is working on the biggest case in U.S. history right now at this very minute. Wrap your head around that. Wow. wow. That's amazing. What that is, God only knows. Yeah. But the biggest case in U.S. history, right now it's being worked on, pursued, whatever that is. Now wow. you know. And this is just strictly Bigger drug related. Bigger than Al Capone. I don't believe the DEA is in the business of lying. They said to me, she's working on the biggest case in, D in the U.S. history. And just to try that on for size. But anyways, I'm contacted by the DEA, uh, and not only contacted, but recognized and, and, and received an award on the same stage, which is the Dolby Theater in Hollywood, California, where they have the Oscars every year. So I'm standing on the same stage as, as the best actors in the world when they receive their Oscars. But my picture looks like I'm on the best stage, the biggest stage where the best actors go to get their Oscars every year. I'm standing on the same stage with Jack Osborne and Dr. Drew receiving an award on my efforts in what I'm doing to combat the opioid epidemic that's taking place in the nation. To me, that's bigger than an Oscar, to that, be honest, because that you're doing one of my proudest moments. Yeah, that's ever. you're doing something for so many people. An Oscar is entertainment, and that's a great achievement. But I mean, that award to me touches so many people's lives. It represents 
what what we need in this country to get past this opioid ed- epidemic. And this is that guy whose mother bought him a plot. This is that guy who people took life insurance policies out on. This is that guy who walked into his 13th facility just waking up from being on life support for seven days. This is that guy that was deemed unhelpful or unfixable, a 20-year IV cocaine and heroin user consecutively, minus the one year due to incarceration. So that was by force, not by choice. So that just goes to say, if that guy can do it, I'm no different than anybody else. The, the steps that I've taken, the knowledge that I have retained is free and it's open to the public. Right. They're not giving it to the cool kids in the bathroom like it's not a secret society. If you want what I have, do what I do and you can get what I get. Absolutely. You know what I hear is, you know, I I think a lot of people go, you know, Brennan Novak, he's been next to Michael Jordan, uh, worked for Tony Hawk, had homes in Paris, all over the world. And he must have got some sort of special treatment from some expensive (laughs) rehab. You know, he must have, you know, they must have really taken extra care of this guy and shown him the path. But you told me your last rehab, your 13th, Mm -hmm. it took you two bucks to get in and you stayed 90 days. 90 days. And you went to the 12 step and that's what resonated with you and lived 12, in a sober living house for one year lived in a sober living for one year washed dishes for six bucks an hour yeah, got a promotion from there to waiting tables and then you, now you're trapped Opened my first checking account my first i got my first ever uh i really i walked in that 13th facility with you know the eight scarves two jackets three socks one stick of deodorant the needle the spoon the restraining order four cigarette butts and a passport. <laughs> that was my form of ID. A yeah. One of these things is not yeah. like the other. Yeah. Yeah. But I walk in, and that was the only form of ID I had. And they took me, and they got me. Um, they got me welfare insurance. They got me welfare. I got uh, 160 bucks every month for groceries. And then they took me to get a. Uh, my sponsor taught me all these things, and he said, "You go to." I went to a bank, and I got. A, I opened up a a a, a, t, a, a, a debit a debit card. Yep. I opened a debit card that turned into a checking account. And I was putting money in off of the money that I was making from washing dishes, waiting tables. Um, and then I said, I want to, I never had bad credit. I just had no credit. I said, I want to get a credit card. So I went to the bank and I opened a, a line, a pre-secured credit card. Mm. Pre-secured credit card turned into a credit card after a year. Um, on my third year, so then I lived in that sober living house for one year. Me and two guys from that sober living house decided we were going to get our own place. So we split an apartment, all three of us. I lived with those guys for a year. Then I decided I was ready to have my own place, and I moved from there to my own place. All that time, a pre-secured credit card has turned into, it's still a pre-secured credit card, but I'm paying it, I'm, I'm gaining interest, I'm gaining credit, and then, I, and then I get my own place. Now I'm building my own renter's credit because my name's on it. Yeah. And then on my third year, I bought a home. I became a homeowner, you know? And, and now I have multiple credit cards. I have a home. I have a productive job that, that allows me to, so let me ask you this. Uh, how did you get back into what you're currently doing now, which is touring the nation and the countries, uh, you know, talking about recovery? Completely unbeknownst to me. I am not clever enough to, to paint this picture for what you guys see me in. Left to my own devices, I'll put this whole room into a needle and shoot it up. I've seen me do it. I'm living in that recovery house, 165 a week, 660 a month. I'm washing dishes for $6 an hour. And... And one day, my phone goes off on uh, a private messenger, and, uh, and they said, uh, hey, this is a fellow by the name of David Golosky. I work at Banyan Treatment Center in Florida. And I said, all right, that's cool. Now, I had never did a treatment center like that. My treatment centers were always, you know, you, you go to detox, and in detox, then you live in the same building for 28 days. 28 days, and you go home. Um, Florida model treatment's a little different. Step downs and whatnot, and... and uh, 
He said, I work for a facility in Florida. Would you be interested in coming here and speaking to our clients? And I said, absolutely. He said, when would you want to do it? And I said, well, the reality is during this conversation, three people's lives have been taken by the disease of addiction. So if it were up to me, I'd come yesterday. He said, all right, let me see what we can do. We put a hole. And then he calls me a couple days later, and he said, all right, here's your date. We're going to fly you in. So they fly me in, and they show me everything, right? They give me a tour of all the facilities, and I'm like, this is rather extreme. Are they about to ask me for a donation? Like, I'm, I'm here to just tell my story. I'm a dishwasher. Yeah, exactly. I'm still living in that recovery house. And, uh, and then the next day, they do some other things. And at the end of it, I said to David, I said, now I'm good friends with a guy named Chris Herring. Chris Herring travels the world, played for the Boston Celtics, the Denver Nuggets. Kind of does what I do. He does what I do. Kind of on a bigger scale. And I said, you know, I want to do what Chris does. And to put that in a form that you might be able to relate to, it's like in the jackass world, I'm, I'm the talent. They fly me in, I film my scene, and I leave. But there's a whole team of people to make that happen. You get the permits, you get the location, the flights, the hotels. So I want to do the same thing in the recovery world, but I didn't know how to get a treatment center or non-for-profits, find locations, someone to... I had no idea. Need an agent. Yeah, basically. So then when I saw Banyan, they had toured me everything, and, and I didn't understand why, but I fell in love with the program. At the end, I said uh, to David, I said, hey, I'd really like to do this, and explain that to him. He said, I don't know. Talk to the owner. We're going to go to dinner with him. And this is the day before I flew. I was flying out the next morning. We go to dinner, and I say it to the owner, and he said, we didn't fly you here for anything. You know, so they already had this plan in place, mm -hmm. unbeknownst to me. I, I, I didn't have any idea this world would existed mm. you know they say if you love what you do you never work a day in your life i i scored that a billion times over and i didn't even try i, I literally tripped into this yeah and so they had they had had that in mind yes and, and they were thinking we want to get him down here talk to him about doing that very thing yeah because i went and spoke at like a uh, a candle lit vigil somewhere yeah for something and and someone filmed it and it started making its rounds on facebook yeah yeah and then they saw that well you have a poetic way of of putting your story into words. I think when, when you say you don't have words, I think that's, that's not true at all. I think that uh, the best authors, the best speakers are people that have a talent for speaking from their heart and telling a story in a way that's relatable to other people. And I'm sure that that's what they connected with and uh, what you love to do. And I think it's the honesty that comes across, you know, and, 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 and the, there's a pureness about you that I can sense because I was doing some research and I was looking at your uh, Instagram page and on one of your Instagram posts, it goes, if anybody out there needs help, call me now. And I got to assume it was your phone number that you put down on there. Yeah. And, and, and you know, I mean, that's that's amazing, you know, to go, hey, look, just call me and I'm here. Because, like, if someone didn't answer that phone when I called for the 13th time, I can promise you I would not be here. So how dare I, like, be granted this gift that I credit to my higher power and then say, all right, thanks, but I got it from here. I'm cool. Because giving back is so much of the recovery world, yeah. is, is sharing your experience and, and, and helping others out. That's it. A helps B helps A the most. You know, people say, why are you doing this? And I go, I, 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 sometimes I feel bad. I want to go, you guys don't know how much allowing me to do this podcast helps me. Yeah, yeah. You know, the fact that it's helping you is great, but it's really helping me to get out there and talk about the story and keep it, you know, perspective and, and, and keep everybody on the same page. 100%. And I love it. And so let me ask you this. If people wanted to find out more about Brandon and read your books and that, can they find it somewhere? Yeah, uh, it's all about. But the best way to see it is just go to my website, brandonnovak.com. All one word, brandonnovak.com.
Uh, and that, that encapsulates everything that I have going on. It takes you down the rabbit hole of all my stuff. And there's a Banyan Treatment Center here in Utah. Yeah, no. Jody, do you want to chime in on what you do here in Utah? I'm with Jody here. And Jody's kind of the one that got this going, and she's going to be with us at the event on Saturday. So why bring Brandon here? So I got to go meet Brandon. I work for Banyan Treatment Center, and we are not located in Utah. We are actually um, in Florida, Philadelphia, Chicago, and Massachusetts. So um, I'm a West Coast rep. I went up and um, got to meet Brandon in January and fell in love with his story and his passion because you can't meet Brandon and not feel that instantly when you're with him. And I said, you know, I really want to get you back to Utah. More of a fellowshipping thing was how this started. And, you know, I get that we get to focus on overdoses and suicide, but fear never once got me sober. I celebrate 17 years of sobriety on the 27th of this month. Congratulations. Yeah, Thank that's you. impressive. And I was told 17 years ago that I was never going to get sober. I'm a meth addict. I'm an ex-con. And I had no hope. And I'd lost everything. And what I've gained in recovery is everything and so much more. And so I got a group of people together. Brandon jumped on the opportunity. Court, I asked Court McGee, hey, Court, will you support this? He goes, no, I want to support it. I want to be a part of it. Nice. That is so awesome. And I went, and then Casey, what can I do? I want to be a part of this. And so next thing I know, the miracle of recovery is happening without any effort from me. And it's all coming into place. And we get to do this amazing event tomorrow that's free to the community that shows that we don't have to do this alone. Awesome. That hand in hand, this is how we get sober. Well, thank you very much, Jody, and thank you, Brandon. Uh, real quick, any last words from you, Dr. Matt? The, the thing that keeps coming to my mind and listen to everything that we've talked about today and the good energy that's been here in the room is that, you know, we were kind of joking around about, you know, uh, at least my low wasn't as low as Brandon Novak's. I hope that people will start thinking, I hope my high can be as positive, my recovery can be as positive as Brandon Novak's. I think that's kind of the whole story here is we want to focus on that, like Brandon was saying, recovery uh, it, it's, it can be for everybody. You don't have to have anything other than that shift that's changing your perception. And I think that's the powerful message, uh, that I'm walking away with today. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I could tell you this from wholeheartedly from everything in my heart, the, the, the sobriety has given me everything that drugs and alcohol ever, ever promised me. I've never been so happy in my life. And, and I feel like today's day and age, like being sober is what all the cool kids are doing. Like yeah. I, I go out to a lot of events, music, and I never rarely get offered a drink, but sometimes on the rare occasion that I do and I turn it down, they find that very admirable. And they're like, wow, now they're intrigued as opposed to shunning me and saying, that's weird. Yeah, I'd you like know? to go back to all the concerts I went to and remember them. Yeah, right? <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, I'm going to, my four-year anniversary is May 25th. I've decided I'm going to go to Amsterdam for my four-year sober date to a meeting and pick up my coin. Not the place that most people would spend four <laughs> years sober, but I can do that. I can go anywhere I want with anybody I want anytime I like. I no longer live in that self-induced prison that consists of a four-block radius that costs me $10 to get out of one bag at a time. And, and I love that because I tell people all the time, I got sober to live, yeah, not hide. Absolutely. Absolutely, man. Well, thank you for being honest, and thank you for stopping by and hanging out with us here us. on Project Recovery. And thank you, John Smith, for running the board, and Dr. Matt Woolley. I'm Casey Scott. And remember, if you need some help, do what I did give a pinnacle recovery a call this is project recovery a ksl podcast